Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we're back here in Zurich for the second episode with Chris Crossman, the CEO and co-founder at Beekeeper. We're going to talk about fundraising for growth. Basically, we start with why fundraising is actually important and also when does it make sense or doesn't make sense to actually raise funds. After that, we will cover a four-step process about how you can successfully close your fundraising for growth. Beekeeper is talking from a first-hand experience because they're currently raising 25 to 30 additional millions in funding. So the stories that Chris is about to share and also the learnings are incredibly valuable to aspiring but also to active entrepreneurs. As always, you can also find additional content on social media. So make sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. So Chris, welcome back to the second episode of Swisspreneur. It's great to have you here again. Today, we're going to talk about fundraising for growth. And the first question is, what mistakes do you see Swiss startups making repeatedly when it comes to fundraising for growth? So I think as with everything, I mean, I'm not an investor, so it's not that I see that many cases, but uh, as with everything, you sort of get what you ask for. Mm-hmm. So if you ask for little, you might actually get little, right? And kind of like being more bold and ambitious and asking for more and aiming higher. I think that's something that uh, one can sort of not do enough of. Mm-hmm. Of course, staying within the, the same bounds of what is uh, reasonable, right? But yeah, I think uh, aiming high and and going for, for a big hunt, I think that's um, yeah, definitely one of the things that we all can do better. <laughs> Absolutely. I would like to take a step back before we actually zoom in into the actual process of fundraising for growth and also talk about why is fundraising actually important? Why do you need fundraising? Because you also have the choice. You could have stayed bootstrapped, uh, but you decided to go and raise funds. Why is fundraising important? Why does it make sense to, to raise funds? I think there are different uh, aspects to it. So one of them is, of course, if there's something that can be accelerated with external capital, I think then it, it makes sense to consider that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning if one needs to invest in yeah, hiring a, a sales team or a marketing team to start speeding up the acquisition of customers or there's a big customer coming and you need to serve it. So you need to build up certain resources. So I think all of those cases make sense in order to grow the business. So at the end, it's about growth. And um, that is definitely one of the the stronger reasons to consider that and to have that that outlook on growth. The other aspect that I think is also very valuable about that is to bring on board people that have expertise and have knowledge that can be helpful for the company to avoid certain mistakes and to to learn from them. I think that's the other good reason, especially in the early days, to bring on board a certain, certain business angels, especially, right? 
And then, yeah, maybe the, the third reason, which is not always the, the best one, but it's at all to get started and to have to buy yourself time to figure out what to do. So yeah. I would say, depending a little bit on the stage, but those would be the, the three reasons why it makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And when you actually raise funds, there's also, also a certain promise that you give to your investors to make more money out of the money that they give you, right? So what are sort of the, the implications or also the promises that you give to your investors when you actually do decide to take money and then they send you the money to your bank account? I think that, that changes over time, depending a little bit on, on the stage. So in the early days, I think it's a lot about validating certain metrics or certain KPIs, having more certainty around uh, certain aspects of the business, exploring certain parts. So I think at the beginning, it's much more that type of uh, metrics or learnings or, or validations that, that are what investors might be joining for. And relatively soon after that, I think the, the next part comes more into the vision. So maybe in the, that not super early stage, but the next stage, more like the seed round. It's more the vision and what the business can potentially become and the people behind it. I think that's the, the other thing that one promises to investors. And eventually, and, and this is always a, something that sooner rather than later sort of comes on, is the, the productivity in terms of revenues, in terms of top line, ultimately uh, the growth of the business, right? So right. at the end, it really comes down to, yeah, what's the dollar number in the top line and the bottom line that you're aiming for and how good can you hold on to it and deliver on that promise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there also a certain pressure that you felt when you also dealt with money of other people and sort of had this responsibility? Mm, I wouldn't call it pressure. I, I would say I felt more responsible for, for that. So we have always been very fortunate to, to, to get on board the, the right investors and, and to be able to choose them in a way that they also align with our values, align with our vision, and want to sort of... A, come along with us on the path that we that we want to go, right? And that has been hugely helpful to uh, to avoid many of those situations that can easily go into having a shareholder or an investor that are not necessarily that helpful and actually do put certain pressure or pressure in a, in a bad sense, I would say. I mean, a certain pressure, I think it's, it's good in a healthy sense, um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're currently also fundraising again. You're looking for 25 to 30 million. It's a bit of a, a higher amount than compared to your first round that you closed to 50K. This, despite the amount that is different, what else is different uh, raising money now compared to your early days where you also said it was too early that you raised money? Yes, I mean, right now I think the, the difference is that we're at a much different scale and, and the whole story is sort of different, right? It's not much anymore if like if it's going to work or not, or will they buy it or not, but much more like how fast can we actually grow and dominate this market, right? So, and by switching into that other mode, there are of course other questions and things that investors want to see, right? Like what, for example? I mean, the typical growth runs tend to look more at, for example, a, what are the unit economics of the business? What are the cash efficiency of the business? how has actually the performance been versus the forecasted one. So there are a number of other things that they start looking much more on the, that 
financial world, so to speak, right. rather than only on the vision side, on the customer side, on the learning side. I think that all needs to be there. That's kind of like a, a must. Sure. And also the, the, I would say, financial case needs to be much more sound. Probably makes sense because there's also much more money involved now. Yeah, correct. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and can you tell us a bit how you actually prepare and also go about the process of fundraising in your current round? How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, it's been in, in the current round and also in the previous ones, we've always seen it in, in four steps. That's kind of like the, the learning. Each one of those steps for us has taken anywhere between one to one and a half months, I would say. The first step is actually the preparation. So it's a... It cannot be understated how important it is to actually prepare. Typically, what do you prepare there? It's typically the, the presentation. So a presentation that can be shown to investors, kind of like in a longer version and a smaller version. And of course, the kind of like financial model numbers and so on. And eventually also some sort of a deeper KPIs or spreadsheets with all of those numbers, right? So I think those are kind of like the three key assets to sort of have when you come off the gate. Mm -hmm. What do you include in the presentation? What do you show there, basically? Yeah, I would say it's kind of like the, the typical one. What's the problem we solve? What is the solution we have? What is the traction we have? Who are our customers? What's our team? Right. Uh, some KPIs, high-level metrics. And then I think in the appendix, it's where we typically kind of like tend to expand it a little bit, depending on the conversations we have, follow-on questions. Um, where you might go more into funnels or certain business model, uh, yeah, business model structure, pricing, all of that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the, the presentation, yeah. And then the second step that you take there afterwards? Then the second step after we have that, well, as part of the preparation, one of the key things is also to have this list of investors. So right. kind of like who are the ones that would be a, a fit for this round, right? If it's more of a growth round or if it's more of a series B or a series A or a series C, there are all sorts of flavors and types of investors. And one of the learnings from our previous rounds is it's very easy to spend a lot of time with the wrong investors because also, yeah, everybody sort of feels like, oh yeah, we want to talk to you and we've been following you and you're so cool. We want to learn about it. And all they want to know is like, where are you in terms of revenue? And that's it. And right. put you in the database and that was it, right? So um, I would say that that's kind of like one of the pitfalls that, that can happen very easily. How can you avoid this effectively? I would say by, by being very clear in terms of if it's a seed round, try to address only seed investors, right? And not get confused or distracted if suddenly like a very big one comes and says, wow, oh, I want to talk to you. Um, it will probably not lead anywhere. Then it's better to say, thank you, but we'll come back to you later. Exactly, exactly, right. And of course, that, that's always difficult to assess uh, beforehand, uh, but it's something that is worth spending time or talking to people, getting advice on it to other entrepreneurs. I think that's certainly something that uh, that, that is well time spent to have a very good, clear list in terms of who are the ones that I should be talking to. Yeah. And how and where do you find them? Do you do like normal desk research or do you have like your own network that you can access there? How do you find the investors that might be a good fit yeah. for you? So for us, 
the way it developed is the very first round, it was from one of our very early uh, backers that knew a lot of investors. And so he did a lot of those uh, 20 initial intros almost. Nice. Or he did 10 and the other one did 10. So we ended up with 20. And that's how we got to a very good network of business angels. And actually, I would say almost since then, we have been really growing out of those investors. We almost never had to kind of like reach out cold to somebody else. So it, it has always been through through intros, either from existing investors or from other entrepreneurs. I think that's uh, the one that has worked for us the best so far, right? But I can imagine also probably due to the strong case that you actually built, they were very eager to share your story and your case with their friends and... Yeah, yes, 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 correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was the preparation phase. What comes in the second phase? So in the second phase, I think it would be the what typically everybody understands as fundraising, which is kind of like the fun part of going out and pitching and talking to them and starting the conversations and then seeing who goes to a second conversation, who wants to dig deeper, who wants to do a little bit more homework. And that is the whole second uh, phase, which is normally what one would classically think as fundraising without maybe the, the back work of getting prepared and the other two steps after that that are also very important. So that, that is kind of like the, the real pitching and fundraising part where the outcome or kind of like the, the milestone to hit there is to get a term sheet, to get somebody to say, yes, I will invest this much for these type of conditions and I would either lead or co-lead around or so. But that is basically what marks that last uh, part of the, of the pitching. And how and where does that pitching usually happen? Do you travel to the offices of the potential investors? Do they come to your offices? How does that happen? I think a little bit different. Um, it's always better in person, but it's also not always the best uh, to start with that. It's very time consuming. Exactly. Right? It is. So a first quick call, a short call, just to see if you're sort of on the same a ballpark or like what's kind of like their sweet spot, where do they invest, what sizes of tickets uh, they normally do, <clears throat> if they invest more in early stage and so on. So that kind of like clarification or qualification type of conversation at the beginning is very helpful. It's like in sales, that. actually. It is, it is, it is in sales, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, fundraising is funny because it's sort of a, a sales process where at, up to a certain point you're sort of selling and then at the point if you get where the point where there are different term sheets and different offers and so on, it sort of flips around and then you're suddenly buying and they're the ones kind of like <laughs> right. telling you why they should be the ones there. So it's a funny dynamic there. But uh, but yeah, it's very much like a sales process. So the more efficient one can go through it and uh, the better. At the same time, kind of like that, that personal touch is always important because they ultimately invest in people. Right. So latest after that first screening call, it's it's good to have the, the conversation. And who of the team should be involved in the pitching? Obviously the founder and, and CEO, but is there anyone else that should be, should be included there? Yes, definitely. So the other uh, team members or co-founders are definitely always uh, good to have there, but not necessarily from the very beginning on. So we have been and especially more towards the later round, kind of like um, trying to not distract too much everybody with the fundraising process so that we can continue to run the business normally. So a lot of, I would say, the first and second call, it's important, it's, it's doable just for the CEO or CEO and CFO or VP Finance to kind of like go through those conversations. 
up to the point where the investor also says, well, now I want to go to your offices, right? So typically it's like a screening call, then one meeting. Yep. If there's chemistry and they like it, then they will typically come on site and meet the broader part of the team. So makes sense. Mm -hmm. And do you use any like CRM tool or anything to manage the investor contacts that you have? A spreadsheet. <laughs> so that, that's something we've kept simple and we just use that, yeah. Also makes sense. I mean, it's yeah. don't fix something if it ain't broke, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And regarding a term sheet, which is the desired result or outcome mm -hmm. out of uh, this second phase, that's something that you also prepare in the, in the first phase, right? I would say in our experience, uh, we, we've sort of seen both models. At the okay. beginning, we were more like, yes, we prefer the term sheet and look, here it is our term sheet. Okay. Uh, in the latest round, like the, the last two, three, we have actually been more on the side of waiting for them to give us a term sheet. Yeah, so we, yeah, it belongs a little bit more to the job that the VC needs to do. And uh, we, we do kind of like give some guidance in terms of how it had been, what type of clauses we had, what we would expect in terms of uh, structures or conditions, if it should be more clean or what you had in the past so that they don't come up with something completely different than you. So some right. guidance is always good. But I think it's good to let them do the work and come up with something that they also can stand behind. So it's also a good sign if they're kind of like doing that work for the deal. Plus less distraction for you. Also. <laughs> but yeah, yes. I guess that's probably a difference between the early and the later stage of uh, raising funds, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you also cover in the second phase that we haven't talked about yet? No, I think the, the second phase is really that part of building trust, of building a certain relationship, getting them excited about the deal, sometimes even ed educated about the space if they don't know that much. So it's a lot of, yeah, putting the recorder on and repeating a lot of <laughs> the same things and always learning and tweaking it as you go through the conversations, uh, what is better and whatnot, right? So I would say that's kind of like the, the second phase that culminates with, uh, with having hopefully a few term sheets that you can choose from. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And then the third phase, what happens yes. there? So the third phase is actually the negotiation of the term sheets. So it's not like you get them and you sign them, but that is also something that typically takes some time. That will be maybe if the first phase of preparation takes maybe four to six weeks, the pitching tends to take maybe more between four to eight weeks. So that's the one that can take a little bit longer. And it's important to kind of like hoard all of them to sort of be in parallel so that you don't have too many differences. And one sort of gets the term sheets in a similar time frame. That is, yeah, at least the theory how it should happen. And once one has those term sheets, the third phase starts, which is normally around three to four weeks, which is kind of like the really the negotiation. Mm -hmm. and the polishing of the term sheet and you might get something that you like and that you don't like and it's kind of like that back and forth to to find something that both parties can can work with uh, once you have chosen one of them and the step before is of course choosing who you want to work with right, right. so it's uh, that's also a phase where internal conversations and alignment are very important be it with the founders and also with the board to evaluate the different partners uh, there are no two offers that are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So there are always pros and cons. It's also not a, an easy choice uh, or a, such a straightforward one. Right. Um, are there any tips or hacks from your side how to negotiate and then also decide about the right investors that you actually want to 
first of all, enter negotiations at all? Yeah, I think having a, a clear mindset in terms of what it is exactly that you want from the other partner is helpful. So looking, I would say, beyond only the, the valuation, which is one of the, let's say, terms that entrepreneurs tend to say, wow, where is it and what is it and so on. So while that plays a role, it's definitely not the only one that should be considered or that in our experience uh, plays a role. There's, of course, the whole structure of the term sheet already reveals a little bit about how the partner thinks and acts and ticks. So if it's kind of like a clean term sheet and simple and so on, it's different than if it's a very convoluted one with many sort of yeah weird clauses and so on. Um, and besides that, of course, what's the added value of the partner, right? Like who is exactly going to be sitting in your board? Who is exactly going to be helping you on the day-to-day -day basis? How do they go about difficult situations where the company didn't perform as expected and has been struggling? What have they been doing there? Um, do you do that with reference checks? or yes. Because that's really hard to, to sort of decide before you actually start working together, right? Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. So it's a little bit like a hiring process in that sense. So yes, reference checks to other CEOs are, are very valuable. And, and having those candid conversations also with them, right? And, and opening up that. And what would be a good, good sort of a good example of what you're looking for in, in terms of added value from an investor? Can you give us an example that you specifically like were looking for, for example? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think, again, we have been very fortunate to have a lot of investors that are, are great for us. Uh, one that I can definitely highlight I mean, I, I can highlight <laughs> so many of them, but for example, with Ariel Ludi, we have had a, a great experience so far. Um, he had just sold Hybris to SAP in 2013 so or, and so on. So in 15, he was kind of like coming out of that phase and uh, willing to sort of give back and promote the Swiss entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem. And luckily, he will also be on the show pretty soon. Oh, great. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sure you will uh, have a great time with him. It's uh, just a fascinating uh, personality and the depth of know-how that he has by having built uh, Salesforce and Hybris and all of the, those big businesses is, has been just, just invaluable, right? And besides that, he also brought on board to Hammer team some of his uh, ex-colleagues at Hybris. So he brought his COO, who is, for example, also even working operationally with us, for one or two days a week. He's our chief of staff. So getting that type of support and operational um, experience is completely, uh, yeah, invaluable, right? Also his chief, well, he called it chief customer officer, but was basically like a chief product officer and customer success officer, so to speak. So having a, also being able to tap onto those type of uh, know-how and personalities that have already gone through the whole process has been uh, really good. I probably also guess that this is where the best learnings come from, from people who have actually done it themselves. Exactly, because th there are like no recipes that will hold true for everybody. So it's a lot about yeah the different phases that you are. Some things are more developed than others. You might be struggling in one part of the company, but very good in the other one. So how do you go about kind of like fixing the different parts that, that are sort of broken, right? Mm -hmm. It requires just a good trained eye that has seen many of those things play through and sort of know already before you even start to fix it, right. what are the best alternatives?
And once in this third phase of negotiating, you also had to face a very difficult or tough decision. You were already pretty, uh, let's say, stepped forward in the negotiation phase, not too much runway left on the bank account, and then you turned down a 10 million investing offer. Can you tell us how this happened and what led you to this very bold decision, as I will call it? Yes, sure. So it was uh, an American investor uh, that we had actually got to know only over the phone. So we didn't get to spend that much lifetime uh, with them. But they were extremely bullish on investing in Beekeeper. They had been tracking us for a while. They understood perfectly our space. Um, super smart people and very, uh, yeah, I would say deep know-how and understanding of where this whole market is going and how we have quite a, a good strategy to kind of like a, be one of those bigger players there. And we got through phase one and phase two, and then we started sort of phase three. We had a signed term sheet. Uh, typically when you ch have chosen somebody and signed a term sheet, it's more like the last and fourth phase, which also takes some weeks. And it's important also to, um, to make sure that, that that one runs smooth, which is kind of like the confirmatory due diligence, mm -hmm. whether look under the carpet if there are no dead bodies and uh, right. and so on. So we we actually had them on site. It was a two-day visit from them. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting experience because it was not so much about uh, what happened, but how certain reactions were, were handled. And what the those different views in terms of the hiring plan or the financial plan and so on triggered in terms of how we would actually be working together right and we very quickly realized it started with kind of like the partner saying well what the f this and what the fuck that and what yeah. using very profane language which is sort of fun i mean we're big boys and we can handle it but sure. it's uh, it, it's kind of like funny to hear that and and especially from a woman who was a partner so that was kind of like a, a, a first mini shock we had, but it's like, okay, let's keep on rolling. And then uh, the the level, I would say, of, of sarcasm uh, was just so high and almost laughing out people that came in and presented something was really something we had never seen. And again, sarcasm is one of those things that you sort of laugh just because it's sort of funny, but in a professional setting, it's always something to be taken delicately as soon as it starts even getting personal, right? Um, and there was a point where where we had kind of like a, a different view uh, on, on a certain topic, and that's where it really exploded, right? And uh, like she started even shouting and, at employees and sending them out of the meeting room and saying, how the hell do you come with this to me? Go and prepare it again. Like things that if I saw anybody going through something like that in the meeting room, it's the type of thing that you would step in and say, hey, what's going on here? So we very quickly realized it was a very different just way of doing business, right? And it's a very valid one and you can also be very successful with that. And it's not a problem. And that's uh, where we realized we were quite far when it came to how we like to do certain things and especially say certain things. As a communication agency, a, a communication company, we are, I would say, quite sensibilized when it comes to the power of words and the power of communication and what that means and how that can actually really create the whole company culture and at the same time also destroy it or change it in some other way, right? So. We realized that quite far in the process, so that was definitely a, a fuck up from our side to not have spent the time before and, and flush out those things. Um, but 
at that at that point we realized wow we have in front of us um, a signed term sheet and mm -hmm. uh, all the documents were pretty much ready to sign it was a very nice and, and big offer to invest uh, 10 million as part of our previous rounds and we said wow so what do we do here right and cash wise we also didn't have a uh, too much runway in the bank and we said well you know what it's certainly not the right thing i couldn't imagine working uh, in that fashion for the long run at Beekeeper to build it up to the point where we want to be. And we said, you know what, uh, it's not for us. As part of our values, we like to be open and transparent and address hard and difficult situations. So we went to her with that feedback and say, hey, we actually wanted to debrief what happened. And the reaction was exactly the opposite from what we were expecting. It was something like, why the hell do you come with this type of shit feedback to me? I cannot imagine after everything I've done for your company, how do you say this? And so it was like completely <laughs> the opposite from what we had expected. And we said, whoa, this definitely is not the right <laughs> direction. And that's when we then decided to say, you know what? Uh, thank you very much, but no thanks. Mm -hmm. Probably also a big confirmation that you took the right decision there. Yes, definitely. It's one of those things that it's a very difficult uh, decision. But the moment you take it, you sort of feel like, yes, this is exactly how we should have done it. And that was also one great opportunity to see how our, our existing investors and backers kind of like stepped up and said, you know what, we're behind this and we'll support you. And we'll also fill up the round. Let's bring on board some other investors. And we managed to kind of like get out of uh, that situation I would say with not too many scratches. So it was a, a very big learning that nowadays in the, the fundraisers, we also do spend that time. We check very similar as in the, in the fundraise, uh, in the hiring process, check also for a cultural fit. And do we have sort of, a, a, are we aligned in terms of values of how we like to do business, how we like to deal with each other. So, so that's something we have learned and, and continue to, to keep an eye on. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to the Digital Economy Award. The award night is the evening of digital excellence in Switzerland. The show will take place on the 28th of November in the Hallenstadion in Zurich. Listeners of the Swisspreneur podcast can get a 12% discount on the ticket by going to www.digitaleconomyaward.ch forward slash Swisspreneur. We hope to see you there. A very impressive story and a bold decision. Um, really deeply impressive. Mm -hmm. Then valuation is also a very important topic in the negotiation phase. How do you go about valuation? Because I know the investors, they have one understanding. Usually the founders have a, maybe a slightly different understanding. Yeah. How do you find common ground there? And what are sort of good ways to uh, reach a common agreement on the valuation part? Mm -hmm. I think... Yes, I mean, valuation tends to be a very sensitive topic just because it's kind of like that one big number. Mm -hmm. And it's half, I would say, science, but also half art. So it's not like it's like a super rigorous method to, to get to that point. And there's a lot of uh, negotiation room, I would say, right? So if you look at multiples, they say, well, the multiple is somewhere between 5 to 10x. So that's like a hundred percent difference right so it can be anything and uh, that's kind of like the spread that there is for for different uh, negotiation rooms right and there's nothing better i mean in our experience it's been always the best also to let the vc come up with that number and let them actually propose whatever they think uh, is worth the business right and that is also one of the filters 
uh, even in the early phases to see, well, maybe we're just not that aligned and maybe we haven't done a good job at articulating why we believe it's a completely different number. Mm -hmm. And it ultimately comes down to how many of those options you have, right? So if you have one and that's the number, then you might want to negotiate, but that, that's about it, right? If you have two, you can sort of at least have two points and try to bring the lower to the higher. And the more options you have, of course, the better alternatives you start creating for yourself, right? But it's a, ultimately a little bit like, a, yeah, part of the whole package and sometimes maybe a bit of a lower number, but a great partner can be better than a very high one, but not a great partner. Uh, something that can close much faster and easier and with less complexity might be better than something that can be very tricky and difficult. Right. Investors like to say, well, if you want to go super high on the valuation, then we might add some sort of a crazy leak preferences yeah. and uh, other type of clauses and structures that are just not uh, that founder friendly, I would say. So it's always a, a trade-off, right? Between where you're optimizing and valuation. While it is, I, would, I agree with you, one of those very sensitive topics, it's not necessarily the only one to be considered. There are also external effects that might sort of affect the valuation negotiations. Like, for example, I remember, I think it was in 2014 or so, when there was a very prominent article in Bloomberg Business Week, if I'm not mistaken, where they already sort of said, hey, Beekeeper might be an IPO candidate at a certain point in time. Do these events affect such negotiations? Or is it just like, yeah, they, they realize that, but it's not really in the playing field? I think it's difficult to draw a direct correlation so it's not like a like a public market that something like this comes up and then right. kind of like the price goes up and down so kind of like the the dynamics and and the the pace of this type of price setting is much more premeditated mm -hmm. so if something like that comes out or happens during the fundraise it can certainly have a positive effect on on that sure um but i think it's hard to to kind of like draw a direct relationship it's more like those type of things yeah not very it's not really prominent at the negotiation table yes exactly i mean what certainly does help is if during the fundraise you continue to keep up your your predictions and you hit right. your numbers and you get a great customer or you get a new type of account or in a new market so all of those things definitely compound and help keep the the momentum going rather than having a i mean what can play in a in a negotiation is actually the opposite right so if you're in that fundraising process and you completely miss a quarter or you miss your numbers and so on that definitely has a <laughs> has an impact so i think it's easier to have an impact downwards than upwards with those type of things but yeah they, they all sort of come in that a almost magic ball that maybe investors use to get to that final number that they feel comfortable with and uh, yeah what are sort of the kpis that you should focus on when it comes in like in order to have a good valuation typically it's two things so one of them is some sort of revenue measure be it kind of like the revenue revenue like the gap revenue or more for SaaS companies the arr like the recurring revenue and and the growth so th those are kind of like the two things that everything sort of boils down to that mm -hmm. so if you have a, a good uh, revenue 
and, and growing fast, you'll get higher sort of valuations or multiples than if you have the same uh, kind of like revenue, but at the lower growth rate. So right. that is, I would say, one very simplified way of, of looking at it. And, uh, but again, at the end, kind of like that variation is, I would say, uh, within what the good negotiation also can, can influence, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Strongly linked to the valuation is also the amount that you should actually raise, mm -hmm. uh, because depending on the valuation, you can or should raise more or less. Yeah. What's a good amount to raise, or how do you actually determine the right amount mm -hmm. that you should raise? There are like many different things that sort of need to fit squarely so that it all makes sense. Right. Uh, normally, you want to raise as little as possible, but just as much as necessary, which doesn't really help to get to how much you should raise. It sounds simple, but it's fairly difficult to achieve. Exactly. And, and typically, so it has to fit between kind of like that multiple of revenue versus potential valuation. And then the valuation also sort of dictates, depending how much you raise, you don't want to take too much dilution. Sure. So it shouldn't be like you're getting diluted 50%. So anything below, I don't know, 30, 20, 10%, 5% if you're really good. All of that is kind of like within the realm of possibilities. Right. And, and that has to also sort of make sense for what you want to execute in terms of plan, right? So there's kind of like the financial model, the multiple, and the valuation they sort of need to, to square out so that you're not asking for 100 million, but your valuation would be 10 million and you actually need only 2 million. So that, that all sort of needs to be a round story. Right. And that is not that simple, I would say, right? And, and yeah. Do you also tend to raise more than you actually need in terms of planned costs that will occur over the, the next months? Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's, it's like a, taking a, like rappelling down from a helicopter. You want to make sure that you have enough <laughs> rope to get down to, to the ground and it's not too short. Mm -hmm. However, it always, especially in these growth phases, it's quite arbitrary to know exactly, well, where's the milestone where, where I want to make the cut, right? So it should be, should be something substantial where you can show progress and then go out again because it's a, a good five, six month pro, uh, project or, or process to go through. So you don't want to do it too early. Uh, but also if you make it too big, you're raising too much and maybe the valuation cannot really uh, justify that type of race, right? So that's where kind of like this, this sort of... Uh, difficult point to say, well, where, where do I cut it? And if I cut it, I know I need that much. I might want to raise a little bit more than that to just uh, be able to make a few mistakes and, uh, and still not run into big problems. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now we really deeply talked about the third uh, step of the process, yeah. the negotiation part. Yeah. What is the last part? I think you already teased it a bit with the due diligence. Yeah, correct. So that, that is the last one and also not to be underestimated because it feels like, oh, Right now I have my term sheet signed and now it's all done. No, then it also still just starts the last phase and it tends to be also quite a, I would say, tedious one and kind of like dry one. It's about drafting out all the contracts. It's about taking a look at all the documents in the company, contracts with employees, contracts with suppliers, with customers, and all of that stuff that is just a lot of detailed work that requires a lot of attention, also a lot of time. And it typically takes, yeah, between on the lower end, maybe three, four weeks, but can expand easily into the six, seven, eight weeks. So that is also something that, that needs to be taken into account because it's not like, 
fundraising, you just go out, talk to investors, and once you have a term sheet, you have the money. No, <laughs> there are like all those parts before and after that are that just add a lot of t lead time to the process. Is there any special recommendation or tip that you can give to our listeners for this specific last phase in order to avoid some headache? Yes, I mean, it would be try to keep everything as clean as possible. That definitely helps. Also, I mean, it's one of those things that you just don't do if you don't have to do it, but it's not a bad idea to have kind of like a data room with sort of a basic structure with those documents nicely cleaned and, and put in a place that, that somebody external can come in quickly and kind of like know what's in there. So that's definitely something that, that is a, a good thing to have beforehand, right? But it always depends on, on priorities and that is definitely not the one that you want to be always focusing on while building the business, yeah. Mm -hmm. sense. You also mentioned the timeline, approximately six months. If you think about a six month interval, there's always a big break in between either summer vacation or Christmas time. Yeah. When would be the best time to actually start this whole process from your perspective? Yes, that's a very good point in terms of making sure that you time it according to kind of like the, the VC time. So VCs don't work over summer. So it's, it's actually a great time to start with the preparation and kind of like start, I would say the fundraising process sometime in early September, but making sure that you don't run too long because otherwise a Christmas break tends to fall within that last phase. So that is one part of the year that is definitely a good one to, to time it. Or alternatively, after the summer break, after the Christmas break, go out sort of early in the year, mid-January, beginning of February, to then have a bit of a longer period before the summer break comes. But it's a, a very good point. Mm -hmm. Now you closed the round successfully. Let's imagine that you also did that with your existing round that you tried to close. And you also uh, already mentioned Aria Ludi, for example, as a good example of a, a very good investor who's also supporting you. I would like to also understand a bit better, after you closed the round, how do you actually successfully work together with your investors? How's the communication? How often do you exchange? What kind of reportings or documents do you send to them? Can you give us uh, more insights into that topic? Yeah, sure. So typically the ones that are basically two groups of investors, one of them are the ones that are in the board with them. One tends to have a much closer relationship. In our case, we do quarterly board meetings. We have uh, Ariel who lives here, but then also Robert from Keen Venture Partners, who is based out of uh, London and Amsterdam. And Philip Stauffer, also, if uh, I think both of them are great candidates to have this type Philip of Philip will come podcast. next year. Oh, yeah. perfect. <laughs> so both of them are, are definitely great. And uh, so being close to them, I, I think with, with them three, we work much closer than, than probably with some other ones. And then the other ones that are not in the board, it's a little bit more of a... With some of them, we have some regular touch points. With others, we just work together on certain type of... Uh, deals or intros for customers. Mm -hmm. So it varies a little bit uh, on the type of investor. With those ones, we tend to have a little bit less of a rigorous schedule on how to meet. As where, as with the board, we, we have a more rigorous schedule. To all of them, we've sent always a quarterly update. It's, I don't know, some 10 pages describing what happened in the quarter, where are we standing, uh, where do we need help, where can they support us. Um, and that is also a very good, I would say, regular communication uh, that we have with them. 
is, is that less regular than in the early days? Because what I know is if you work with business angels in the early days, it's usually a monthly reporting. Yes, I think from the very beginning, we, we sort of went into this quarterly mode for many things, even uh, from a sales perspective, sales target. So a lot of what happens is happening during the quarter and we establish for ourselves that, that pace. I know other companies have a more of a monthly rhythm. I'm not a big fan of it. I think you end up sort of reporting and, and so on more than what you are actually doing. So I think as entrepreneurs, it's it's better to to have more of a quarterly rhythm. I can understand certain investors, especially in the early days, might get a little bit more nervous and want to know what's going on with their money and they need some more regular updates. But ultimately, it's a bit of a question of uh, finding the right cadence that, that works for, for that setup. But I think uh, 90 days is pretty smart because it takes time to actually close a sale, especially in B2B. Mm -hmm. And it also frees up time. Instead of writing reportings, you can actually work on closing that sale or closing it, like working on the business, basically. Yes, 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 yes. So in order to conclude the episode, I prepared some rapid fire questions for you. Wow. Um, basically, I give you two or three selections. You just choose one and quickly explain in one or two sentences why you made this choice. Very Are good. you ready? Ready. Cool. United States, Europe or China? Europe. It's a great combination of uh, history and culture, but also innovation. Motivation or discipline? Discipline. That keeps you going much longer than motivation, I would say. Probably also inspired by sports, I can yes. imagine. <laughs> Work-life balance or 80-hour work week? I would say 80-hour work week with some balance. <laughs> so there's no way around to working hard and working long hours in this. It's, I don't think nobody has built a business, a big business, uh, without putting a lot of effort into it. Mm -hmm. The next one, you've seen both small 10-people teams or large 100-people teams or companies. I would say I, I choose the the hundred people one. I think it's it's beautiful to see how much a, a big group of people can achieve. Um, yeah. Sales or marketing? Sales. <laughs> Why? I mean, I think uh, that's what ultimately brings in the revenue. So, in, in especially B two B, I think the, the sales part is is there. The marketing is also super important and ultimately helps even more to drive the sale. Right. And the last one, bootstrapping or VC money? I would say first bootstrapping, it just gives you much more, I would say freedom and, and ways of, of learning and growing. And if there's an inflection point, then VC money is definitely. Mm -hmm. Chris, thank you so, so much for taking the time. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And I learned again a lot during uh, our chat and Lots of success for the future and all the best. Likewise, thank you very much for having me in the podcast and all the best to you and to the future of the program. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We hope you liked the content and if you did, please rate us on Apple Podcast. We would highly appreciate that. Next week, we'll already be back with a new episode, a Q&A session. Check out our social media channels for handing in your questions to the topic that we will discuss next week and get them answered by top experts out of our network. If you have a burning question, that's the time to ask it and get it answered from professionals. So we hope to see you again next week for an all new Swisspreneur episode.